And I'm going to mute all. Okay, and we are ready to start. So I'm going to give again, as always, the brief, and it's going to be shorter today, um, a brief overview of the Torah portion that we're going to read the Shabbat. And after that, we're going to focus on one topic, um, the opening verse of the Torah portion. So let's just start with what the Torah portion talks about this week. The truth is that, you know, there are seven readings and six of those seven readings are quite short. One is extremely long and that is number six. So the first reading talks about the mitzvah of Bikurim. Bikurim is your first fruit. So the law is that from your first fruit, you have to give to the Holy Temple. It's one of the gifts that are given to the Holy Temple, which is directed at the Kohanim, the priestly tribe. Now, what happens is that when you, it comes around Passover time, springtime, where you have the budding of the new fruits, you go out into the field, you take a red ribbon, and you tie it around the new fruit because later on when you come back, when all the fruits are ripe, how are you going to remember which one was the first fruits? So you went and you tied a red ribbon around it. And then seven weeks later, the next holiday after pa Passover is called, one of the names it's called is Chag HaBikurim, the holiday of the first fruits. And what you would do is you would bring the first fruits and you would place it in a basket and you would start traveling towards the Holy Temple. They would notify the Levites that were serving in the Holy Temple that the group has come um, already approaching into Jerusalem and they would actually go out with their musical instruments and it would be a very, very joyous occasion. And, and the Jews would go out of the way. For example, they would bring it on an ox and they would adorn the horns of the ox and they would adorn the ox and they would put it, if they can afford it, they would have a golden basket and they would bring it to the Holy Temple with great, great joy. And that is the mitzvah of Bikurim. Now the mitzvah of Bikurim is not concerning all fruits because the verse says me-reshis, not reshis. The prefix m, mem, means from, not all. And we learn out different things from here. You don't give all of the first fruit, you give of the first fruit. And the sages talk about, biblically speaking, there is no exact amount, but the sages give uh, different amounts and they learn it out from different places. However, one of the things we learn also is that you don't give every type of first fruit. Rather, you give the first fruit from the seven species, the seven different kinds of fruits that Israel is praised for. You have the figs, you have the grapes, you have the dates, you have the pomegranates, and that's what you use for the Bikurim. Then, after that, the Torah talks about the, the other things that you gave from agriculture. You gave the tithe, the different tithing of the produce, 
um, and there's the truma, there's the miser, the different types of gifts that you brought to some go to the Kohen, some go to the Levi, and on certain years uh, it goes, there's one that goes to the poor person, and there's one that goes to yourself, but you have to bring it to Israel. So there's different types of tithing. There's the three types, which I just mentioned, the one that goes to the Levi, the one that goes to the poor person, and the one that you can eat, but has to be eaten in Jerusalem. Now, besides that, there's the Teruma, which is, that does not go to the Levi, it goes specifically to the branch within the Levi tribe, which is the Kohanim, the Kohen. Now, there's the law when you're supposed to, at what point you should take it out of your house. In other words, in the olden days, you know, they, they weren't going to travel every time back and forth to Israel. It was difficult to Jerusalem. So they would let it, so to speak, gather up. And then there's the holiday of Sukkot, which at that point we're told it's time to remove that which belongs in the holy temple from your own property. And then there's a beautiful thing that you read and you say when you do that. Now, part of what that beautiful, it's the same with Bikurim as something else, but also you read a beautiful um, piece saying that you've brought this, God has blessed you and you've brought from the fruits that God blessed you. However, in this specific one, in giving away the tithing and the truma, you close with an amazing verse. Now, why do I say it's an amazing verse? I'll explain. The verse says, Hashkifa, glaze upon, look down upon, glance upon us from up in heaven in your abode and bless your people. Now, what's interesting about this verse is that we are taught that different words, synonyms, but different words are used for different experiences. Now, if for an example, when we say look, there are different words that you can say in Hebrew for the word look. Re'ei, hashkifa. You can say to look, histakel. Um, and each word in the Torah is used specifically as it can do it for a specific experience. Now, the word that we use in this verse is the word hashkifa, and that is used in the Torah for, as it can do it, for the attribute of justice and retribution. For example, if you look in the Torah, when it says that God looked upon Sodom, it says vayashkef, now, the word Vayashkev, like the word Hashkifa, is talking about God looked and what came out of it was retribution. God saw that Sodom was immoral, precisely the exact opposite of this verse. The immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're taught, was specifically in their cruelty to anyone amongst them that was kind to people, charitable to people. And because that word is used as a conduit for an experience of justice and retribution, you will then find again and again when God uses this specific terminology 
for look, it's going to be connected with retribution. Now, in our verse, out of all the words that we could have picked, the Torah picks specifically this word, this specific term, which is used for retribution. And we are asking God through this word, look upon from your holy above, look upon us and bless us. And thus our sages want to know why is the Torah doing that? If this is a terminology of look, which has become and is used over and over again and again, specifically for a can do it of retribution, why are we using it here when we're asking God for blessings, kindness, and compassion? And the answer given is unbelievable. The answer given is that the Torah wants to show us the power of charity. The power of charity is specifically, not only is it capable of bringing blessings, but it's even capable of, of transforming, turning over retribution into blessings. That is an unbelievable great power. That is the power not only, again, not only is it does, does charity bring blessings to us, but even if, God forbid, we have done something which is deserving of retribution, the power of, of charity is to go ahead and revert and transform, turn over that of retribution into that of blessings. And thus our sages tell us about charity, that Great is charity that it saves from death. Great is charity that brings about redemption. Now, I want to share with you one story, dedicating the story to my niece and her husband, my now nephew, um, who just got married last night. And I shared this with her as she gave charity at the wedding. So the Talmud tells us that the great and famous Rabbi Akiva was told by a stargazer that your daughter is going to die the night of her wedding. Now, she was young, very young at the time, but Rabbi Kiva just pushed it away. So said the stargazer, I have faith in God. It came the night of the wedding, and the next morning, Rabbi Kiva came to see, remembering what the stargazer told him, he came to see what happened to his daughter. How is she? And she comes out and she tells her father, you won't believe what happened. She says, what happened? What happened was that when she went to sleep after the wedding, when she took her hairpin out of her hair and she stuck it into the wall, like, you know, to just be there, she's, you know, and the next morning when she woke up, she realized that a miracle happened and she put her pin, without even realizing it, straight through the head of a poisonous snake. When Rabbi Kivas saw this, he understood that what the stargazer 
saw was true, but somehow his daughter merited to revert and transform what was supposed to be negative. So the Gemara tells us that he asked his daughter, tell me, Biti, my daughter, tell me, did anything specific happen last night? Did you do anything extraordinary last night in which you merited such a miracle? And after thinking, she said to her father, there is something I did. By the wedding, everyone's so busy and happy and eating. And I noticed a poor man. And I walked over and I made him a plate of food. And I gave him and I fed him this plate of food. And that's when Rabbi Kiva told her, your act of charity reverted the verdict that was upon your head. That's what saved you from dying last night. Thus again, when we talk about charity, we don't just use terminologies of blessing, but rather we specifically take a terminology used for retribution the word that was used by Saddam when God was going to act in justice and retribution, and that word, hashkifa, is transformed into blessing, compassion. That is how great the power of tzedakah is, the power of charity is. Now, also I want to share with you, when we talk about the first fruits, there is a very interesting teaching and I'm sharing it with you on this notion of Bikurim the first. This teaching comes from the great Kabbalist who lived about 500 years ago in the sacred city of Tzvat in Israel. And his name was Rab Isaac Luria. He's known as the Ari, the lion. Um, uh, by Svardim is more called the Ari HaKadosh, the Holy Lion. And by Ashkenazim, he's called more Ari Zal, means Ari of blessed memory. Now, he has a very interesting teaching. And this is the way it goes. We are taught in the mitzvah, in the commandment of honoring our father and mother. There's an extra word there. The verse said, Kabet et avicha vi et imecha. And the sages say that it would have been simple and proper grammar to have said, Kabet et avicha ve imecha, instead of using the word et twice. Now, the sages tell us that we have to learn something out of this extra word. And they bring proof and they extrapolate that it means one has to honor an older sibling. Not only your father and your mother, but your older sibling. There are those that say that this law refers specifically to a firstborn son. Now, why is the honoring of the father, of the older brother, if it's going to say the firstborn son, why is it part of honoring your father and mother? It's in the same verse. It's got to be connected. So the Arizal explains that on a mystical level, all further siblings receive from their father 
and their mother through the firstborn. Thus, the honor of the firstborn is part and parcel of honoring the father and mother. Now, the, the Rebbe in a teaching of a mimer, actually it had to do with a wedding again. On the 25th anniversary, the Rebbe said a mimer. His mother asked him to bring in honor of his 25th anniversary. He did, and he said a mimer l'chadodi l'ikrat kala, what we sing about Shabbat, when we call Shabbat our bride. So on that verse, the Rebbe gave a mystical discourse. He quoted this teaching of the Rizal, and he went on to explain. So too it is that it is so important when you wake up, the first word out of your mouth should be thanks to God. And thus, you know, the first words out of our mouth when we wake up in the morning, we clasp our hand together, even before we wash them, we slightly bow our head, and we say the verse, Moda ani lefanecha, I acknowledge, I thankfully acknowledge, I am thankful to you, God, for returning my soul. And the Rebbe explains, just like that Rizal says, that through the firstborn child, all the other children receive vitality, so too, through the first words out of your mouth, all the words of the rest of your day receive vitality. Thus, if before we go to business and before we deal with the mundane world, the first words out of our mouth is, thank you, God. Thus, it is through that vitality of gratitude and connection and consciousness of God and God's goodness that every other word comes from. Let's go back to what we're saying now about Bikurim. What we're saying is that when you go out into your field in the beginning of the spring, Passover time, and you already mark the first budding, the first budding of any produce, the fruit, you already mark it with a red ribbon, already saying that the very first fruits that I am receiving from God, I am giving to God, thus, we learn out from here that all the produce you're going to have will receive its vitality through that consciousness and act of gratitude and of giving. I want to take this just one step further. And thus there is, and this is the last teaching will go on from this portion, from this part of the portion. There's an unbelievable teaching concerning what Joseph did at the end of Genesis for Pharaoh. So there was a hunger, and Joseph said to everyone, you want to get food? You pay for it. And Pharaoh told them, listen, you know, Joseph warned us there's going to be a famine, and he's the one that, you know, ran the royal um, storage, and he gathered together. And if you want from it, you're going to have to do what he says. So he went and he said, first, give me, pay for it. When they came back and they said, we have nothing left to pay you. So he said, okay, then give your actual land to Pharaoh. And then later he said, sell yourselves as slaves to Pharaoh. And that's basically how he got that Pharaoh, the king who he served, became literally 
the rightful owner of every human being, every animal, every field. Now, after he did that, so Joseph, in order to make a statement to say, this is not a joke, your land does not belong to you. It belongs to Pharaoh now. He went and he moved everyone around. Those who lived here, he put there. Those who lived there, he put there. So literally they knew that this wasn't their field. And then he told them as follows, I'm going to give you seeds and I'm going to let you work the land. But because the land is not yours, it belongs to Pharaoh, what we're going to do is we're going to divide it in five-fifths. Four-fifths you will keep and one-fifth will go to Pharaoh. Now, in Kabbalah, we're taught that Pharaoh, in a deeper mystical sense, and it brings the wording that the word Pharaoh in its most spiritual source represents God, because the word paro comes from the word ispariun, which means he from whom all light comes forth. So mystically speaking, in the highest dimension, Pharaoh refers to God. And thus, what's Joseph saying? That you will give one-fifth to God and four-fifths keep to yourself. And actually, in Jewish law, it's brought down that some people, instead of giving tithing, because of this verse, they actually give 20% to charity. What I want to talk about is the mystical teaching upon this. And it says like this, by giving 20% to charity, you're making that the, the other 80% is the leftovers of charity. And thus, this is not mundane money, this is blessed money. So again, I just want to share with you all the teachings, how giving charity is not just affecting that which you give, but that which remains by you is now the remainder of charity which is blessed money. Okay, let's move along now. The next part of the Torah portion, it talks about Moses commanding the Jewish people that when they're going to cross with Joshua, the Jordan River, there's going to be a miracle there that everyone knows about the split sea of reeds that Moses did. Um, interesting, not many people know, or not every person knows, that Joshua split the river by the Kohanim carrying the holy ark into the water. The water split, and then they stayed there until all the Jews crossed. Now, while the water was split, Moses gives the Jewish people very specific directions. There's going to be three different sets of 12 stones that they are to erect. 12 in the Jordan River, 12 in the first place where they get into Israel called Gilgal, and then 12 at two mountains, which is called the Mount Avo and the Mount Grison. Now, interesting what was done with these 12 rocks. They engraved, they engraved in them the the entire Torah and the entire Torah in, 12, in, in 70 languages. And God said, let it be for anyone who wants to come that they should know that it's available to them. 
if they're willing, if they want to accept it upon themselves, it's available to them. And, and as you know, you know, the laws of conversion is, is in the Torah. Um, it cannot be pursued. In other words, we can't pursue people to convert. Um, and it needs to be from the person's own will. And if so, it's all available. And it's interesting because I'm just going to put in my own thoughts. If there was ever a time where these 12 stones, which carries the Torah in 70 languages for anyone and everyone to be able to learn, it's our generation on the internet. You literally have engraved in cyberspace any book of the Jewish religion translated into any language given in classes on any language. So truly that concept that God's offering exists really practically today. You don't have to travel to Mount Abel and Mount Grisom. Now, the next part, which leads into the longest part of the Torah portion, and it's a very difficult part. Moses tells the Jewish people that they're going to reach these two mountains and they are to divide. And he says, which six tribes goes up on one mountain? Which six tribes goes up on the other mountain? And then the Levites and the Kohanim and the Holy Ark remain on the bottom, the valley in between the two mountains. And there the Jewish people enter into a covenant. And in that covenant, it tells you, cursed be he who does A, B, and C. Um, and then after the whole list of curse, there's the whole list of blessings. Now, interesting enough, just that you should know, the Talmud has three different opinions how really the Jewish people were set up, were the Levites, the older Levites, the younger Levites, were some on the mountain, were some not on the mountain. The simple interpretation, the way Rashi explains it to us is, according to the opinion, that six, the six that Moses, that, God, uh, that Moses told the Jewish people in the name of God to go up on this mountain, one here, and the six tribes over here. And then he goes on to explain that they would turn. They would turn towards one mountain and say, cursed be he who, who uh, want, uh, just an example, one of them is Hasagas Gvul. Hasagas Gvul literally means that you go at night and you take the border between your property and, and your neighbor's property, and you move it over, stealing from his land. This mitzvah actually is translated in a larger form, that if someone comes to a city and opens up a pizza shop, and it's a very small little village, and the only, you know, the, the, the kosher pizza shop, there's only enough people to support one kosher pizza shop, and then someone else comes along and opens up another pizza shop, kosher pizza shop, that too falls under the category that you're infringing upon the boundaries of someone else. So for example, those are one of the things that it says cursed. Now, after he goes on to say the exact curses that they say there, Moses goes on to say, you know, the blessings, and if you will follow, and he goes on to list blessings how God will protect and, 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 and conquer and all this stuff, and that the fields will produce and so forth and so on. Then he goes on to say, but if you will not listen to God, you will not follow in his ways, and he gives, that's why it's so long, he gives a slew, a slew of retribution what's going to happen. 
and it's very difficult. When you read these things there, it's very difficult to digest. Now, this happens, just to share with you, this happens in the Torah twice. Once at the end of the book of Leviticus, and one here towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, they are lined up so specifically that the first time from Leviticus we read before the holiday of Shavuot, which is the holiday that we receive the Torah. The second one is lined up this week, which is prior to the new year, prior to the high holidays. And it's done so specifically. Two things are done specifically. One, that it's right before either Shavuot or and Rosh Hashanah. And secondly, it's made not to be directly before, but there's always another Shabbat before to separate this curses, retributions from the holiday of Shavuot and so too to separate it from the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. The simple interpretation is because at these two times of the year where you're entering into a relationship with God, you should be clear on what this relationship entails. If you do, what happens? And if you don't follow, what happens? Now, I'm going to just share with you a story and then give to you, share with you a personal insight. The story I want to share with you is that in the founder of Chabad Lubavitch, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, he was the one that read the Torah every single week in his shul. One time on this week of Kitavo, he had to be away on Jewish, um, you know, the, the Alter Rebbe was very, all the Rebbe's were very involved in dealing with the government and dealing with stuff to protect the Jewish people. And a lot of times it would call them away from their place and they would have to go to meet. And so too, the Alter Rebbe was away from his home and from his community and from his shul one year on this Shabbat. So someone else read the Torah. The Alter Rebbe, one of his sons who became his successor, known as, uh, he's called Rabdov Ber, um, and he, after that Shabbat, fell extremely ill. He was a young boy, but he fell extremely ill. And they asked him, why, what happened? What, what's, what happened? Why, why did you get sick? What happened? What did you do? And he said that he heard on Shabbat, the reading of the Torah, the retribution, the punishments, how horrific they are. You know, and if you still don't listen, boom, 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 boom. And if you still don't listen, boom, 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 boom. And they're very rough. They're very rough. They're not simple curses. They're talking about how, how literally we're going to go, you know, from mental stress, from what we're going to be seeing, what's going to happen to us mentally, emotionally, physically. It's just horrific. So they asked him, but you heard this last year. This isn't the first year you heard it. Why, why are, this year are you having such a, a terrible reaction to it? And he said, no, you don't understand. All the other years I heard my father read it. And when my father, the Holy Alter Rebbe, reads it, you don't hear curses. And thus we're taught that really in the deepest, deepest sense, all these curses are really ultimate blessings. 
Now, I don't know how to translate all of them. I'll just share with you one famous one that I learned. One of the curses that we find in the Torah is that there's going to be such poverty that you're not going to be able to afford firewood. And thus, 10 women are going to bake simultaneously in one oven so they can all use that one measurement of, of uh, firewood. I just want to share with you that in Kabbalah, what that means is that we, go, we have within us 10 different faculties, three in intellects and seven emotions. Now, in the deepest sense, this isn't a curse, but this is a blessing. By saying that all 10 are going to bake together simultaneously in the oven, what it really means is that we're going to have inner congruency and inner peace. It's not going to be that our mind wants one thing, our heart wants another thing. We can't come to terms between our love and our fear and, and our compassion and our justice, you know, scattered all over the place. But rather, we will all work in one inner peace where everything is aligned. Our paradigm, our feelings, our desires will all work together. So I'm just giving you one example how that which looks like the most horrific curses, really, if you're a man like the Alter Rebbe and you see the divinity in everything, and if you see divinity, then you must see compassion. You won't see the retribution harshly, but rather what you're going to see is the deepest levels of compassion. Thus, the boy the Alter Rebbe's son said, I never heard what I heard this year. Because every year I hear something beautiful and compassionate. So I just wanted to share with you that insight upon a deeper meaning to this, to this um, portion. Based on that, I also want to share with you, and again, what I told you until now, none of it was my own. But now I just want to, you know, clearly say that this is my own. It's not something I saw in the holy books. But I want to share with you a story. There was a man who I actually knew. Um, he comes from Haifa, Israel. And his name was Ruvain Dunin. An unbelievable, unbelievable giant. He got involved with Torah and Hasidus a little later in his life. A whole interesting story. Now... He was such, such a emotional, I'm not saying, he, not, not taking away from his brilliance. He was really a brilliant person. But his level of sensitivity, sitting by a Fabrengen, how easy it was for him to burst out in tears when he spoke to us. Just really an unbelievable person who actually had an unbelievable relationship with the Rebbe that most other chassidim didn't have. The Rebbe, I, I understand, told him that you don't need permission to come into my room. Whenever you want, come knock and come in. And it was a very interesting. One time when he was by the Rebbe, the Rebbe questioned him. The Rebbe said to him, Reuven, I hear that by your fabrengans, you speak very harshly, very coarsely. Why do you do that? And without a blink of an eye, he answered back the Rebbe, Rebbe, I need not only my soul should understand, I need my egocentric animal within me 
also to understand. Thus, I need to speak to him in his language. Now, based on that story, I want to share with you my personal insight to, the, to this part of the Torah portion. You know, if we can only see, again, this is my own, if we can only see that the Torah is lovey-dovey, compassionate, and everything's going to be okay, then we're not having a holistic relationship with the Torah. We need to know that the Torah and our relationship to God is. And how we perceive it will be as a reflection to that which we show to it. And thus, the Torah lists out for us not only the good, but also the difficult. Telling us that the choice, even within the difficult, what you're going to experience depends on the lenses you choose to wear. And thus, if you choose to wear the lenses of your lower intellect, your lower spirituality, so then you're going to perceive reward and punishment in its lowest level. And then, yes, 10 women will bake simultaneously because of poverty. However, even if we do fall and slip in our relationship with God, however, if instead of slipping into the lower intellect of shame and guilt, we can hold on to our higher intellect of I am a godly being having a human experience and part of human experiences are to slip to make mistakes, sometimes even consciously and rebelliously because of what we're going through. But that doesn't change the fact that I am a godly being having a human moment. Then we are blessed that even when we have to deal with the retributions, what we really can see is that if we can just rip off the gift wrapping, which we placed on it, what we will see is true compassion and even a deeper compassion than that of the reward. So I just wanted to share that little spin onto reading those difficult verses to realize that I see what I look at and thus, not what I look at, I'm sorry, what I look with. And thus, when we read those Torah portions, we're going to have a choice of how to see those verses. Do we want to see it from the lower intellect, which is basically when you behave like a dog, God takes out a stick to you? Or do you want to see it on your higher intellect, a father who sees his son going in a difficult way, finds compassionate ways? and continues to unconditionally love him or her to bring them back home. And, and that is the most primary part, like I told you, the largest part of the Torah portion. Okay, um, there's another portion, but looking at the clock, I want to 
I want to move on to what I prepared just on the first, Torah, first verse of the Torah portion. So the first verse that talks about the first fruits says, Kitavo when you shall come to the land which God has given to you, and you will inherit it and you will settle it. Then you shall go on to give the first fruit, and it goes on to do all that teaching. So what I want to share with you is the mystical definition of that verse. Number one, Kitavo when you shall come to the land. Our sages tell us why was the land called land? The word aretz comes from the word ratz. It ran to do what God wanted it to do. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, we connect that with the word ratzon, will. And what it means is as follows. When you come upon that beautiful moment where you feel the will within you, you feel that power of desire, yearning, spirituality, goodness. At some point, we can go ahead and say, okay, that's it. That's the goal. The goal is to experience this feeling. And I want to just use an example. A lot of times we say, I cried it out and I feel better. As if the purpose of crying is to feel better. Now, I, I'm not against feeling better. <laughs> May we all have it. But really in the higher definition of crying is the definition of motivation, arousal, and empowerment to do what you need to do to fix the situation. As they say, and again, very often I mention here, recovery program, when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, that's when you make a difference. So if the crying isn't sick and tired of being sick and tired, it's just a beautiful moment where I can say I'm sick and tired and cry over it and then feel better. That's not the ultimate goal. But rather, the verse goes on to say, and when you come to this beautiful experience that God has given you, you must inherit it and settle it. What does that mean? What it means is that in the teachings of Kabbalah, emotions, feelings, and experiences are like fragrance. If you don't bottle it, it moves on. And thus the job is always to bottle and settle, bring into reality this feeling. And what that means is that when you're feeling a closeness to God's world, when you're feeling a closeness to the human beings around you, you got to bottle it in an action. What can I do to make this feeling tangible and real and practical in my life? When I'm feeling an amazing feeling of closeness and yearning and desire for God, what can I do to make that physically, tangibly, practically real? And thus there's always that question, what am I going to do about it? That's how we settle, like settlers, and that's how we truly inherit and inhabitate the gift of a spiritual experience with God. 
And then I want to take this one step further. And when you have received a gift from God, and when you have made it practical and real in your life, the next thing is to give a piece of it away. And by giving a piece away, what you actually conquer, what you actually accomplish is that only through then do you truly own this. And I want to give you a story with this. And with that, I will complete. I will finish. So this person was asked, a very wealthy person, how much are you worth? And he gave a number which everyone knew <laughs> that that's you're worth much more than that. And he said, no, that's what I'm worth. I says, come on, seriously. I mean, just, just by your portfolio and your, and your stock and you know, your company and the stock, we all know that you're worth more than that. He says, no, I'm not. He says, what do you mean? And he took out from his office, from his desk, a little metal box and he opened it up and he said, add up. And the guy saw that in there he had receipts from different donations that he made. And the guy said, no, this is what you gave away. This is not what you're worth. And he said, not so, my friend, because this is the only thing that's coming with me when I die. What I own is what I have given, not what I have held on to. Thus, let's go back to that first verse. When we have this moment that God just gives us a moment of reprieve from narcissistic, self-centered, egocentric obsession, and we can have just that gift of seeing beyond our nose, becoming part of beyond just ourself and our own needs. When we have that moment, the first thing is to on it settle it inhabit it and then if you really want to own it in a way that no one can ever take it away from you share it with someone else thank you my dear friends i'm going to unmute anyone can share whatever they want just one second i'm still with my me okay you want to come say hello to my class